We return to the Word of God tonight, to that passage of Scripture that we read together, Exodus and chapter 32. Now I know that in one exposition it's not possible to give an exhaustive exposition of such a great chapter and such a solemn and serious chapter in the Word of God. So bear with me this evening. Whenever we look at the Old Testament, we see shadows of today. We look at the prophets and we see how relevant they are to the present time. We look at Job and we see what it really means to suffer. And we have in the book of Job a remarkable theology of suffering. We live in a day when there is a great deal spoken about healing. What we need today is a theology of suffering. When we come to the book of Exodus, we see shadows of the gospel. And we see it time and time again in the book of Exodus. And somebody has rightly written a book, the gospel in Exodus. But we also see the reality of the folly of God's people and the great long-suffering of God. Here was Moses, and he was up in Mount Sinai, and he was receiving the law, the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Now these people had seen things that we have never seen. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be by the Red Sea, and to see the Red Sea open, and enabled it to go through the Red Sea, and then to see the Red Sea close upon the Egyptian army. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see the manna from heaven? Every day getting up, there was a manna, and a double portion before the Sabbath. There were the quails, there was the flesh to eat, and it all came as a result of God's amazing grace. For the people complained, and God gave them in grace the wonderful manna. But here we have a sad account, a very sad account. And in verse 4, verse 1 of this chapter, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. What a way to talk about your leader under God. And Aaron, being a wimp, gave in to crowd pressure. How could they do this? In spite of all that they had received. And we are reminded here, are we not, of the fickleness of the human heart. How the people are easily swayed. How they are gullible. And if somebody says something, then we believe it. And up in that mountain, God was to meet with Moses and inscribe the Ten Commandments. 
and say at the very beginning, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so Aaron says to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And the people did it. And they brought them to Aaron. And he took hold of the gold, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a moulded calf. What an obnoxious thing to do. And then what a terrible thing to say. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And not only did he say that, but he built an altar before it. And he then made a great proclamation. Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. What feast was that? And they rose early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. Can you imagine anything so awful, so terrible, so obnoxious as that? In all that God had done for them, he had brought them out of the house of slavery in Egypt. He bore them through the Red Sea. He had even met with them in love and grace at Mara, that place of bitter water. And they had known what it was to receive the manna. Is it no wonder that God said to Moses, get Get, go get down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And here is the all-seeing eye of God. They have made themselves a moulded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed and said, This is your God of Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They'd already broken the first commandment. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Can you just imagine being Moses in a situation like this. It must have been terrible for him to hear those awful words from God. <coughs> he hears up on the mountain. He's known what it is to be at that place. What does Moses do? Well, he pleads with God. He knows what it is to lay hold upon God for all that he is worth. 
Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. You see, God disarmed them and said to Moses, they are your people. And Moses in his boldness before the Lord reminds the Lord that they are his people. He knows what it is to intercede with all that he is before the Lord of heaven and earth. And he reminds God that it's all ultimately about his glory. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Lord, you've said it. And you must bring your word to pass. And God heard Moses' plea and relented from the harm which he would said he would do to his people. What a terrible day that must have been. And Moses is angry too. For on that mountain he had seen something of the transcendent glory of God. When he knew what the people had done, how could he not be angered? And there are times, my friends, when we have to be angry. But Moses' anger was love on fire. And he comes down the mountain. And he comes down the mountain with the tablets written on both sides. The work of God, written by the finger of God, engraved on the tablets. And Joshua hears the noise of the people and says to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat. The sound of singing I hear. Can you imagine Moses seeing the calf and the dancing? And he was full of anger. He knew the God of the Bible. And he cast the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they had made and he burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Can you imagine that? What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? What a wimp Aaron was. What a wimp. A spineless wimp Aaron was. This is his response. And what a response it was. 
My friends, it's pathetic. Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. What an absolute lie. And when Moses saw the people were unrestrained, he gave them a challenge. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And there was a most terrible day that every man kill his brother every man his companion and every man his neighbour so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell on that day Moses took command of the situation he was a true leader But he was also a true intercessor for the people. Consecrate yourselves to the day to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. Every man has opposed his son and his brother. Moses confronted the people. How different from Aaron. And said, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And oh, how he pleaded with the Lord. All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Awful and how terrible. An idol takes the place of God there was nothing wrong in the golden earrings it was what they became that made them an idol we are made to be happy that's why we say happy birthday happy Christmas happy marriage But ultimately we are to be content in God. One of the old Puritans said that man's heart is like an idol factory. Tim Keller said that in today's culture, an idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. 
it can be sport, it can be a hobby. I know in my own profession, people will go anywhere and get up at any time because their hobby has become an idol. It become a home. It can become a job. It can even become a preacher. Idolising a preacher. It can be possessions. It can be a computer. It can be a radio programme. It can be a television programme. It can be a particular version of the Bible. I fear there's idolatry there. Man's heart is like an idol factory. You see, the great danger is that we can end up living for these things instead of living for our true and living God. This dear woman, Miss Eldridge, she lived for God. And she lived for God's glory and they lived for God's majesty and she knew him she would often say to me with a smile on her face I have a wonderful God a wonderful God a wonderful and a glorious God and we do have a wonderful God a really wonderful God. When the writer to the Hebrews was writing to believers, he reminded them at the end of Hebrews chapter 10 that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. In other words, although they had goods, because they knew that they had enduring possessions in heaven, when they lost their goods, it was not as painful as it might have been. Some years ago, a man who I knew in the ministry, he had a house. And he went to another fellowship that had a manse. And he sold his house and put his money into a friend's son-in-law's business. And the idea that he had was this, that the business would flourish and that he would be able to give of his services to that fellowship free of charge. The business went pear-shaped and he lost everything. This is what he said to me. We have lost everything, but we still got the Lord. How could he say that? Because the God of heaven was his all in all. He was free of idolatry. 
His satisfaction was in the Lord his God. And in his goodness the Lord provided a home for him for the rest of his days. And God has made us in order that we might delight in him. In order that we might glory in him. In order that we might be content in him. In order that we might live for him. When John was writing his first letter, you remember how he put it at the end of that letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols are so easily there, and they are so wonderfully attractive. And the devil knows it, and he desires that you and I follow idols instead of the living and true God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 7, we are told this. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose to play. Now the people of this world have to live for something. They have to live for idols. But when a person becomes a Christian, they're ultimately to live for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul the Apostle could say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For he had an all-consuming passion to live for the Son of God. He knew what it was to be free of idols. He knew what it was to be imprisoned for the gospel. Because he lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. I've known a number of wealthy people in my life. And able to live because they are wealthy but have not been affected by their wealth. Because ultimately their satisfaction has been in the Lord their God. And they know how to handle their wealth wisely. And maybe you're not in that category tonight, but my dear friend, you can make an idol of a little thing. And we must be careful that in our lives... We live ultimately for the Lord Jesus. That he is to be our consuming and overall passion. And so Moses says to the people, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Who is on the Lord's side? That is a great question. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. The thing about idolatry is, idols are, they'll try and justify them. 
Idolatry makes us excuse the idol. And if you find yourself trying to justify something, it could well be an idol. Unbelievers have to have idols. They have to have something to live for. And you see that in them. A man I once knew had nothing left and he was an unbeliever. He said, I've got nothing to live for. And I understand that. But you see, the purpose of conversion, and some of you have become new believers, how we thank God for that, is to dethrone all idols and put God at the centre of your life. But I have to say, look, like weeds in a garden, they want to come back. And they'll try and capture you. And they'll try and captivate you. Don't be like Aaron. Spineless wimp that he was. Pray. Lord, help me to keep these things in their right perspective and not become an idol. Be careful of modern technology, dare I say that. Who is on the Lord's side? It is the best side. God saw them in Egypt under slavery, under the taskmasters of Egypt. And he brought them out with a mighty hand. He opened the Red Sea. He provided all that they needed for their journey. He guided them perfectly. He bore with them wonderfully. What an insult to build an altar in front of that calf and announce a festival to the Lord. God has brought us out of darkness into light. God has enabled us to stand on redemption ground. God has loved us with everlasting love. God has sent his Son into the world to be our Saviour. He has borne our sin in his own body on the tree. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And we have that glorious and wonderful future before us. And if the Lord doesn't come again in our lifetime, we will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. We have eternal life as in present possession. We have a Christ who will never leave us nor forsake us, who has loved us beyond our comprehension. And who one day we shall see again in heaven's glory. 
How can we have idols when we have that? A wonderful and an amazing saviour who loved me and gave himself for me. When Miss Eldridge was 90, she lived in a little bungalow and she had one of these antique men call on her and steal some of her most precious possessions. And the police were involved and in the Lord's goodness, the man who did it was convicted on her sole evidence at South End Crown Court. But in the midst of all the investigation, the police were wonderful. She said this, I'm soon going to leave it all behind. I don't know what the fuss is all about. Because you know, in her heart, her satisfaction was in Christ. He was all in all. I have a friend called Charles Sleeman. A couple of years ago I rang him up to see how he was. He's in Pilgrim Homes in Hazelmere now. He's 96. I know that because he's 20 years older than me. And he used to ask me various deep theological questions and I used to have to squeeze my brain at times. And he said this to me, he said, Is Christ my all in all? Is he my all in all? Is he your all in all? Because he ought to be, you know. He is a wonderful and glorious saviour and if you're not a believer here you've got to have idols because you've got to live for something oh turn from those idols to the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone and see him as a wonderful saviour a wonderful person who will cleanse you from all sin who will deal with you tenderly and graciously and kindly and lovingly whatever you've done whoever you are the blood of Jesus Christ God's Son cleanses from all sin may we all know what it is to keep idols at bay I have a friend who loved bowling. He loved bowling. But he suddenly saw it became an idol. He had to give it up. He had to surrender it. A bowling can be an innocent thing for anyone. It's a good thing. It's nice. Good for the nerve. Good for the body. Good for the mind. 
But it was a good thing that had become an ultimate thing. I had to give it up. Not because I said, but because he knew it to be true. And may we know what it is to deal with idols. They can cling to us so greatly and so powerfully. May we know what it is to keep ourselves from idols that have the Lord Jesus and his amazing love and his amazing grace ever before us. Let us pray. O God in heaven, grant that this preacher may have the Lord Jesus as his all in all. Grant that we might know you, your Son, as our all in all. We thank you for our precious Christ. And every believer can say he loved me and gave himself for me. Oh God, may the Lord Jesus be our exceeding great reward. and the Lord of our lives and the King of our lives. In Jesus' name we